0: This episode of the Energy Gang is brought to you by Atachi Energy. If you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out our podcast Power Pulse, where we explore the transformation of the world's energy systems. Visit us at atachienergy.com/backslash powerpulse. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Today, we're going to be talking about the energy crisis in Europe. European leaders are telling people not to take hot showers and to switch the air conditioning off to save money. What do these measures tell us about the sacrifices that people might be prepared to make to prevent catastrophic climate change? And California plans to end sales of most gasoline fueled cars by 2035. Is this the beginning of the end of the internal combustion engine? And after some disruption over the summer, we've put the old gang—well, one of the old gangs—back together again. Melissa Lotz back. Melissa is, of course, director of research at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, and she's been also at the controls of this podcast while I've been away over the summer. Hello, Melissa. Welcome back.
1: Hey, Ed. Good to see you.
0: And we're also joined by Amy Harder from Cipher, which is the climate publication from Breakthrough Energy. Amy, great to have you back as well.
1: Wonderful to be here. Thanks for the invite.
0: So, uh, Amy, what have you been doing over the summer? How have you been spending your time since we saw you last?
1: Well, I've been doing a lot of work and a little bit of fun. Uh, just last weekend, which was the the Labor Day holiday in the U.S., I was on the San Juan Islands, and uh, my partner and I took uh, an Arcimoto around, which is relevant to our conversation in that it's a new... Uh, electric vehicle. They call it a FUV. Actually, that's what they trade on the NASDAQ, FUV, fun utility vehicle. It's sort of like a uh, electrified version of an ATV, which I love to drive ATVs around. So it was really fun. I had range anxiety and my partner did not. uh, We did not run out of power. uh, And it was really fun.
0: Yeah, that does sound tremendous. And as you say, very relevant to the discussion on the EVs we're going to be having later.
2: Can I just say, Amy, though, I want to know, did you get that FUV? It looks like the top speed is 75 miles an hour with that 102-mile range. How close did you get to the top
1: speed? Oh, <laughs> Can I just Oh, ask? goodness. We didn't <laughs> even get close to that. I didn't even know that was the top speed. <laughs> That's what the internet tells me. They had know. us wear helmets, uh, and mm. the top speed we went was 47 miles an hour going down a hill. Mind you, the okay. limit was actually 37, so hopefully okay. the San Juan police okay. aren't listening to this.
0: Uh, So, Melissa, I know some of what you've been doing recently because I have been listening to it on this podcast. I have to say I greatly enjoyed the shows you did. For some reason, I always seem to enjoy listening to this show more when I'm not on it. Uh, I thought you and Robbie Orvis were both great uh, the last time out. Uh, I have to say, I particularly enjoyed the contribution from Linus Mofor, and I would urge people to listen to it if you haven't caught up on that show from a couple of weeks ago. Linus Mofor was from the UN Economic Commission for Africa. And it just struck me listening to him how many kind of really interesting points he was making that we don't hear that often in the energy and climate debate. I think the African perspective on energy and climate is not heard nearly enough in the debate when we talk about it in Europe and the United States, which naturally tends to be where a lot of our perspective comes from. So that was fantastic, I thought, to hear from him and uh, definitely want to hear from him again soon. Apart from that, Melissa, how have you been?
2: I've been good. I'll just say when it comes to Linus, I really enjoyed the part of the conversation where we got to dive into how different countries within Africa are perceiving actions in the U.S. and actions in the world in response to the current energy crisis, like the Inflation Reduction Act. What do they think about it? Like, I really appreciated hearing that perspective. I, I only wish we could have shared even more of the conversation and the back conversation you know before we recorded the show just uh, we went down so many rabbit holes it was really fabulous so agree like having him back would be would be awesome i really enjoyed that conversation but i'm doing well like things are busy you think things slow down in academia over the summer not at all especially when you work in energy with everything going on i think it's just gotten busier um but columbia is back on campus and i start teaching this week so i've been prepping for that amongst many 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 other things
0: now we should get on with the business of uh, what we're going to be talking about on the show, which is first and foremost the energy crisis in Europe. It's a subject we've been debating a lot already this year, but it does seem to be intensifying, getting significantly worse. A lot of people, I'm sure, will have seen the news about Russia cutting off gas supplies through the Nord Stream pipeline. And that means that Europe really is facing potentially a very bleak winter. We've been Looking at the European gas situation, at Wood Mackenzie, my colleagues have been kind of crunching the numbers and analysing how things might play out. And their view is essentially that everything now depends on the weather. If it's a mild winter, then Europe will probably have enough gas. But if it's a cold winter, then things are going to get really rough. There will probably have to be demand containment, rationing, and probably even blackouts as well. I've been trying to alert my family to this. I've been calling and texting everyone I know that lives in the UK and saying, look, you really do have to be ready for this. This is a very genuine, serious risk you have to be worried about. You should be prepared for blackouts. You should stock up on everything you think you might need if the power and the gas are out. Might not happen, we don't know, but it's certainly better for people to make preparations and be ready and not need them than to go unprepared and wish they had made those preparations. So as I say, just on that personal basis, it's a very worrying time for me, and I think really everyone who lives in Europe and has friends and family in Europe. The crisis, though, has raised a lot of other questions as well, and broader questions. And one of the things that we think is particularly interesting, and we've been um, talking about this earlier, is this question of what it tells us about energy in the long term, and energy and its relationship to the struggle against climate change. Because in a sense, what people are being asked to do at the moment is make sacrifices. We've had this said more or less explicitly in various different ways by various uh, European politicians. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, president of France, was really very explicit about this and saying, essentially, times are going to be tough. There is going to be hardship for a lot of people in Europe. It's going to be economically very difficult for us. but That is a price we have to pay essentially to defend freedom in Europe and to defend the rights of the Ukrainian people to have self-determination and to retain independence from Russia. So the question is whether there's sort of an analogy there and whether people are prepared to make sacrifices to serve a national or a humanitarian cause, whether they're also prepared to make sacrifices to limit climate change. Put a lot of polling evidence on this, and I'll come on to some of that data in a moment. it be interesting to hear, Amy and Melissa, what you think of that. But just before I get onto the data, what do you think about the general principle of this, which is this question of whether there's, as I say, an analogy between the idea of making sacrifices to stand up for Ukraine and independence, self-determination and making sacrifices to fight climate change? Melissa, what do you think?
1: Oh,
2: man, Ed, I think this is a tough one. So when I think through it, you know, long term, one of the narratives that I don't think is correct when it comes to addressing climate change is the idea of we have to somehow go back in time and use less or do less. The idea is how do we actually facilitate a transition that allows us to do all the things that we want to do in our lives? That includes, you know, traveling to see family and friends. That includes, you know, doing our laundry and, you know, keeping our house cool in the summers and hot in the winters or at least, you know, physically comfortable and safe but in a way that doesn't contribute to climate change. Like that's the question. So it's not about having people do less or having countries not develop. It's about doing all those things, but doing them in a way that doesn't compromise the environment in which we're living, our health, et cetera, so contribute to climate change. When I think about the crisis that's going on right now, two things. One, I think I've said this before on the show, this highlights how few tools we actually have available when these crises occur and how the investments to give us more tools have to happen actually well in advance of a crisis if we want to have them available and at this point there's not a lot of options left and so the question is how can we keep the most number of people safe during you know the winter time like how do we do that because at the end of the day you know energy is something that keeps us healthy in our homes it's not a pure luxury that you can say, you know, I'm just not going to have cake or something for the next bit. These are things that are essentials, not nice to have bonuses. You know, they're they're what we need every day. So I don't I don't know how closely I'd compare the two. Actually, I feel like they are different conversations to me. I don't know, Amy, if you feel differently about it. Maybe you see it differently.
1: I feel, I see it similarly than you, and I, I definitely agree when it comes to climate change. We need to be able to afford clean energy technologies that enable our lifestyle more or less the same way that we are now. That said, I think what the crisis in Ukraine is highlighting is showing just how different these two crises are. They're both crises, the climate crisis and the Ukraine crisis, but they are very different. And for some period of time... And I know I may get into this a little bit more in a moment. For some period of time, I think Europeans, the average European is going to be willing to make sacrifices. I think the longer this goes on and the higher the prices go and the risks compound, I think that type of willingness could could wane as the the restrictions from the government actually become mandatory. So it's no longer a story about voluntary individual sacrifices, actually a government fiat coming down because things are getting so dire in Europe. But the, the urgency and the draconian uh, actions that are being taken in response to the show that climate change is also extremely bad, but in a way that is hitting the entire planet in different ways and in different times. And sh- it just shows why I think that people even, let's even assume that some level of sacrifice is required for climate change. I think that's going to be much harder to get Um, because of the way climate change plays out over decades and centuries compared to a war, which hopefully does not last decades and centuries. And that's even more reason why we're going to have to uh, find other ways uh, to live the lives we're living while combating climate change.
0: Okay, so this all sounds super reasonable in the sense that, as you say, we shouldn't be asking people to make kind of long-term sacrifices people aren't going to be prepared to make long-term sacrifices. And so if you're going to address climate change successfully, you're going to have to be able to do it in ways that allow people still to have access to energy services. And I guess that point about still having access to energy services is the way we think about it in rich countries, in the US, in Europe, in Japan. There's many parts of the world where people don't know anything like the access to energy that we've got literally billions of people living without access to clean cooking facilities, for instance, hundreds of millions of people living without access to electricity. And so the question of how you meet their needs as well, while also addressing climate change is a lot of one. But to go back to the question about winning support in the developed countries, we have to kind of be able to do that to maintain living standards. And as you were saying, Melissa, a lot of our energy use is not kind of voluntary or fun it's the stuff we have to have we have to use to stay alive but still it is unequivocally the case right now that a lot of low carbon technologies are more expensive than high carbon technologies and obviously costs have been falling a lot so renewable energy wind and solar costs have come down massively they are very cheap super competitive now maintaining a grid with a lot of wind and solar on it given their variability is much less cheap that's Complicated and tricky thing to do, or thinking about industrial processes. If you're making kind of steel or cement or anything like that, all those kind of things which you want to do, you're going to have to do in a low carbon way if you're going to get to net zero. All of those low carbon processes are at the moment much more expensive than the high carbon processes. And clearly, economies of scale, technological progress, all those costs are going to be driven down. We think, we hope. But supposing they aren't, or supposing they aren't as much as we would like, and there is still going to have to be some kind of premium to be paid somewhere for decarbonisation, then how do we manage that? And if the point went, as you say, we would like it to be the case that no one has to suffer any diminution of living standards in order to address climate change, suppose we can't do that, then what? I guess that's my fundamental question about all this. And I don't know, Melissa, what do you think?
2: I mean, this goes back to the fundamental question of what costs are you talking about? Because we're paying huge costs for climate change. We're paying huge costs. We're just not paying it through our monthly bill that we get or whatever interval in which you receive your energy bills. So it's one of those things that because it just goes back to the whole, are we putting the true costs of all of our energy use into the same bucket. No, we're not. We're just paying for them out of different buckets, whether it's paying it out of an insurance bucket when a massive storm hits Houston or it's paying for it or a wildfire, you know, um, burns down a bunch of homes and, and puts people out of those homes. Are we paying for it with the health impacts of all of this stuff? Um, Cause it is clear from the evidence that it is harming our health already. And it's just getting worse. Um, the answer is we're paying for it out of different buckets that makes it complicated. So At the end of the day, the cost stuff, and you can talk to Michael Greenstone at Chicago or any number of economists, and they'll say it makes absolute sense to act and to decarbonize the energy system. But the question is, you know, how do we design policies and regulations in a way that you don't have people who are already on the cusp being pushed further into a really bad place? And I'll say, I don't know if you all caught the study that came out of University of York um, earlier. This was about a week or two ago. Um, two weeks ago that talked about how two-thirds of all U.K. households are going to be trapped in, trapped in fuel poverty by January, even with that 400-pound, I think it is, Ed, rebate that the government was talking about issuing. Still, we're going to have two-thirds of U.K. households in fuel poverty. And I was particularly struck. That's already really bad, right? Two-thirds. But we're talking about 86% of retired folks, so pensioners, being in fuel poverty, and more than 90% of households with single parents and young kids. Are going to be in fuel poverty in the uk because of this those numbers are just you gotta take a minute Un- that's picture those families like what are they going to do and a lot of these families they're already cutting back they're already wearing a sweater when it's cold they're already opening the window to get a breeze when it's warm they're already doing those things so where can they flex and that is a policy and social discussion like how are we going to actually make sure that people can stay safe in their homes in the face of all this.
1: Hearing those numbers is just staggering. And yet at the same time, the pandemic and the war in Ukraine is setting back, trying to get energy access to the hundreds of millions of people who have never had it, largely in Africa. And so it's absolutely, it's really daunting to hear you say that because uh, unfortunately, what I think is going to happen is because the developed world is struggling to keep the lights on affordably for its own citizens, it's going to make progress toward helping developing parts of the world get their lights on even more. And it's not just lights on, right? Uh, one of you mentioned clean cooking. Uh, Cypher has an interview. By the time this publishes, uh, it, will, it will have aired itself. An interview with Damiola Ogunbahi, who is a um, UN special rep for energy access. And she has some really stark words for the developed world where going into the UN General Assembly uh, in later this month, that this is going to be a big topic. And you hear the uh, Pakistani official talk about how they're dealing with these terrible floods when they have not been the ones to cause uh, global warming. That is is, now, of course, we should always say that there's attribution studies being done to show just how much climate change impacted these floods. But we can say, generally speaking, that floods are getting worse because of climate change. And so I think you're going to see this debate between uh, richer countries and poorer countries become even more stark as we are all struggling to have affordable energy. I can't read to read that article.
2: I'll say, Amy, um, Damalola is on our advisory board here at the Center on Global Energy Policy, and I love the direct and clear way she communicates, you know, how different countries are seeing current discussions and what paths forward really are. It's one of those tough things, but I want to pick on one one thread Ed and Amy around this, which is what you said at the very beginning, Amy, which is that this isn't just. I've I've seen a lot of comparisons to the 1970s, and that was a crisis. That was an oil crisis. This is an energy crisis. (laughs) It's affecting oil and gas and coal and supply chains and critical minerals that we need to build the future of the whole system. It's causing east-west divides. I mean, this this is this isn't quote-unquote, and I don't mean to minimize, you know, the 70s, but quote-unquote, just another energy crisis. This might be the first global energy crisis. And it's something that I know we were talking about. um, The director of our center, Jason Bordoff, and professor at Harvard, Megan O'Sullivan, they co-wrote a couple of pieces. One that came out, you know, a year ago, before Russia invaded Ukraine, talking about the looming energy crisis um, in Europe, and more to the point, the geopolitics of the transition, and how things get bumpy before they get smoother. And even when they're smooth, it's not that they're still not Geopolitics and all this. But then they came back, and this week we published a podcast that they did with Foreign Affairs talking about what's going on right now and how this may be the first ever full energy crisis we've ever seen and what that means and what it means for Europeans who are trying to keep warm this winter. But to your point, what it means for all the countries that are not just looking at how to mitigate climate change as they build out their systems, but looking to build out their systems, period. And the evidence is so clear, you're right, Amy, that climate change will affect those communities, those countries that least contributed to it. And that's a really tough reality to bend into. And I think Linus last week, Ed, talked a lot about this and what it means for going into COP and when we get to Sharm el-Sheikh, like what those conversations are going to look like.
0: Yeah, I agree with all of that. And you've been painting a very grim picture. It is clear that conditions everywhere are very difficult. Just going back to your point, Melissa, about extreme hardship facing people in the UK. I've just been watching Liz Truss, the new British Prime Minister, just been uh, appointed by the Queen. And one of the stories that's been going around is one of the very first things she'll be doing in office is announcing a bailout plan to cushion the blow of these energy prices on the British people. And they're talking about a cost of that of £200 billion is -hmm. the number that's been flying around. So huge impact huge cost in trying to alleviate it and even that might not be enough but of course one of the things then that does point to very clearly is where does this cost come from answer it comes from the very high prices of fossil fuels and natural gas in particular and to the extent that then you're able to get away from that reliance to the extent that you're able to invest more in renewable energy invest more in nuclear power then you can the blow and this is not something which is going to help this coming winter but it is definitely clear that when you hear policymakers talk about this they are very aware that in the medium to long run one of the things this crisis shows is we need a lot more investment in energy sources um, of all kinds and we probably Do need more oil and gas. We certainly need more oil and gas for the next few years, possibly for longer. We absolutely, definitely need more low-carbon energy, and hopefully, what we're seeing now will be an impetus to clearing away the remaining obstacles that exist to getting that energy infrastructure built and getting those supplies, uh, you know, to make them available. And you could certainly say, I think, that things like the Inflation Reduction Act we've seen passed in the US, that we've had a, a lot of discussion about on earlier shows here in the past few months. That is one very positive sign, I think, of starting to move in the right direction in terms of supporting energy investment. I think you can see a lot of the policy measures that people are talking about in Europe, again, are very positive signs. So although it's a very grim picture for the next year, certainly quite possibly for longer, because, as I say, these things can't get put right quickly infrastructure takes time to build you're looking at probably a period of several difficult years in Europe but in the longer term we can hope could be a more positive outcome
2: i mean i think that it's a combination of grim and optimistic is actually what's in my head right now so it's grim in the sense of if this winter is really cold that's going to be very tough and this directly affects people and I study public health effects, uh, you know, associated with energy use. So I, you know, I can go grim on that. And I'm hoping, I just, I mean, I'm hoping that we have a mild winter in Europe. And I'm hoping that, you know, people are able to keep themselves safe in their homes and that governments are able to, you know, deploy what tools they have to keep people safe. The optimistic side of me though, and, and this is looking for the silver lining, maybe folks can tell me what they think of this, but this is highlighting, this whole situation is highlighting things we already knew which were, you know, as we decarbonize, we still need to supply the energy we need today. So it's the whole, we have ambitions, we have goals, and then we have current reality, and we need to, you know, walk and chew gum, do both. Um, So it also highlights to me the importance of policy that sets clear targets and long-term trajectories because energy infrastructure, we all know, you invest now, it's around for decades for most things that we're talking about. So how do we set up policies that give clear trajectories so we can... Do the walk and chew gum we can supply the energy we need today while we transition in the future because maybe in 50 years maybe in 30 years uh, most personal vehicles will be electric in some parts of the world but in the meantime we got to keep cars on the road to get people to work today you know and we got to keep the heat on in the winter so Those things are not, they should be part of the same conversation. They shouldn't be separate conversations. And so, this whole situation is making us lean into that conversation that needed to happen. And so, I'm hoping that we can avoid more bumps in the future by leaning into that.
1: I definitely agree. Things are extremely grim, and we shouldn't try to gloss over that. Uh, Some research that I've seen shows that uh, Q1 of next year is really going to be rock bottom for the gas crisis in Europe. So, that is a is a good benchmark for us to see how bad things get before that because it's more likely going to be the case that things are going to get worse and also sharing a a statistic from my colleagues at Breakthrough Energy fertilizer production is down 70% year over year which is threatening Europe's food security
0: yeah yeah that is staggering it's amazing number that just breathtaking i mean and so and that, that way that an, an energy crisis turns into a food crisis
1: exactly and it shows the importance of Right now, we can't get fertilizer from wind and solar, and natural gas is an important feedstock in making fertilizer, and it it highlights the importance of natural gas in a host of industrial processes, many of which we don't really think about, but that we can't currently get from cleaner sources. And so that isn't an argument to remain dependent upon natural gas, but it's a reminder that we can't just turn off the spigot or whatever the right term is for natural gas, and is further reason to continue to invest and innovate in the new technologies where we can make fertilizer and cement and other pr- processes without um, things like natural gas. So I just think it's it's a reminder that of the various roles that we need natural gas for. And on the other sort of silver lining here is that I think I think the crisis is highlighting the importance of pragmatism in this debate, that we need natural gas for certain things and that we may need other energy sources that we may not like very much, like nuclear power. Germany continues to debate whether or not it should shut down some of its plants that it had planned to. And I know California is reconsidering its last plant. So all of these things, I think, are interconnected. And although this is not an optimistic tone, it is at least hopefully we can get something long-lasting that is supporting action on climate change and energy security out of this crisis.
0: And to your point about, as you say, it's going to get worse before it gets better, and probably sort of the first quarter of next year, the depths of the winter in Europe is going to be when it's at its absolute worst. That does make me worry about some of the political choices that might get made then. Looking at some of the opinion polls, I mean, you see, for instance, I think still in most European countries, strong support for government stance to um, back the Ukrainian government, maintain sanctions against Russia, supply Ukraine with arms and so on. And there is still, I think, broadly speaking, political support in Europe for decarbonisation and maintaining net zero goals and so on. But it was interesting, I saw there was one opinion poll that said that For instance, in France, 40% of people thought it would be a good idea for the Gilets Jaunes movement to come back. So this was the the protests that uh, in particular were focused on fuel prices and tax that the French government was imposing on road fuel and managed to succeed in getting the increases in road fuel tax uh, reversed. I wonder if there is going to be then a real danger of backlash against climate policies, despite everything we've said about the ways that actually decarbonization can help address the crisis, can help tackle dependence on fossil fuels and the dependence on Russia that many countries have, and offset the impact of these soaring oil and gas prices. Despite all that, you might still get kind of irrational policy that looks for quick fixes. People get desperate. There's a line that's been flying around about civilization can only withstand two weeks without power, and that if you're really starting to uh, have widespread blackouts that last for a while, the political system is really going to be under strain, and then sound energy policy is really going to be challenged as well. Do you see that as a risk?
1: I definitely do. And I think, you know, this is such a fast moving story. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, our Brussels correspondent, Anka Gerzu, who um, is the one who interviewed Damiola, so shameless plug there. Everybody should go listen and read that and watch that. Uh, But she had a story a few weeks ago talking about all the ways that governments are asking citizens to take um, personal sacrifices, voluntarily speaking. Now those asks are becoming mandatory. And then I think we're going to reach a point where there could be a backlash and that's going to hurt everything including climate goals and so i think we really need to be real about that and to know that this is a cycle it's a pendulum and right now i think we're swinging on the side of the pendulum where citizens are going to start getting getting tired of this
0: this episode of the energy gang is brought to you by Atachi energy if you're enjoying this conversation, you should check out Atachi Energy's own podcast, Power Pulse, where we explore the transformation of the world's energy systems to advance a sustainable energy future for all. Recent episodes focus on opportunities for offshore wind in the U.S., the unique contributions of women to the energy industry, and the challenge of meeting EV fleet charging demand. Visit us at itachienergy.com backslash Power Pulse.
2: So I think these are all really good points. Something I just want to highlight that I... think was implied but maybe not as explicit as we could have made it at the very beginning is just that in this situation this is different than the blackouts that i wrote out in texas where you know we hadn't weatherized our systems for cold winter storms and we had a really extreme one and we saw the impacts of that this is you know a war where a country has invaded another one where a country is using energy as a weapon and it's a very different dynamic and so i think we can expect people's responses to be different Hopefully, you know, practical solutions and thinking about, you know, the immediate needs, but also the long game will play a part in all this and will affect any policies that come through. Again, I feel like how extreme things get this winter is partially out of our control, like how cold this winter going to be. How tough are energy systems going to be strained um, and what decisions are governments going to be willing to make? One thing I will say, though, and Ed, I'm curious if you're hearing anything different amongst your European colleagues. I know you're there right now in the midst of a lot of conversations. The Conversations I'm hearing are that this is absolutely reinforcing accelerated action to decarbonization. That's not just what we're, re- we're reading in the headlines. It's like reality on the ground. There's the tough questions about what we do in the near term. And are you burning more coal? Are you, you know, where are you getting your gas? What kind of options do we have? Um, and what do you do in terms of conservation methods over the winter? But in the long term, it's saying, you know, we knew this risk was there. We knew that this could happen. Now it's happened. And there's no going back for us because, you know, we have to transition. We can't have this risk be as extreme as it is now. But are you hearing anything different? Do you think the conversation's changed at all?
0: No, I'm not hearing anything different. I think you've captured it uh, exactly right. As we've been saying, there is definitely a strongly held view among European leaders, policymakers, that advancing, even accelerating the energy transition, investing more in renewables, investing more in nuclear, investing more in energy efficiency, all of those things are still absolutely central to addressing the energy crisis and over time making Europe less vulnerable to spikes in natural gas prices, disruption in supplies from Russia, and so on. I think the issue is, and you touched on this earlier, Melissa, there is a big question about how you reconcile those two imperatives, which is that decarbonization transition in the long term, long term, I guess, meaning sort of 10 and 20 and 30 years, with the urgent need for increased supply of oil and gas in the short term, meaning one, two, three, four, five question mark: how many more years? And of course, particularly as you were saying, you've got a lot of very long-lived infrastructure. you have pipelines and LNG plants and wells and offshore platforms and everything else that might have um, economic lifetimes measured in the decades. How do you get people to invest in those? to provide the supply that you need right now, while saying, oh, but we're not gonna need that supply once we get into the 2030s. And that is a genuinely fundamental contradiction, I think, which people still haven't really resolved. And as you say, there's a lot of ideas flying around and uh, sort of dual-use infrastructure and things you can build now that would operate now with uh, natural gas, but in the future could operate with a mix of hydrogen or some other low carbon fuel and so on. So there are kind of ideas out there but they're still at early stages yet. They're not at the point where really people are able to roll out those kind of plans. And so that does create a fundamental tension, and that is something which is, I think, definitely uh, delaying the response to the crisis because people can't work out exactly what needs to be done to get those increased supplies in the short term.
1: It's interesting to observe the sacrifices that individuals in Europe are being asked to take and now being required to take uh, because there's really... A comparison to what's happening today in California with the, the heat wave um, affecting large parts of the West, although not Seattle. I'm calling in from Seattle, and it's uh, for once we are being um, saved from the heat wave. But in California, the electricity operator there um, is asking for voluntary demand reduction between the hours of 4 and 10, including asking people not to charge their electric vehicles during those times. And so here, I think, is another example of how long and how much are people willing to do that? I was reading today that the reduction in demand and energy use um, today is going to need to be two to three times greater than what it's been in previous days, and so of course a lot could happen between now and when this airs. But the general concept of self sacrifice is the extremes are different, right? People um, in in Europe are facing a much more dire crisis, but it, it's the same in different ways for people in the West. And so I just think it's interesting to draw that. Um, analogous there. And I know California um, is also something we're going to chat about.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, but I think you're right. Let's let's move on now to the other thing I'm keen to talk about. And I think it's a very nice segue into this discussion of uh, California's ban, ban, in inverted commas, on sales of gasoline cars, because it's not exactly a precise ban, as we'll get into. As we've been saying, Oil prices have been soaring as well as natural gas prices over the past 12 months or so. They've actually dropped back quite a bit in the past three months, but they're still pretty high. Uh, As I'm talking right now, about $93 a barrel for Brent crude. Gasoline prices, which uh, peaked in the US at a record high of over $5 a gallon back in June, they've also dropped back quite a bit and they're now under $4 a gallon, but still that's pretty high by historical standards. And those high fuel prices have given a big boost to demand for electric cars. And what State of California moved to do last month was to kind of ride that wave and to accelerate that shift to electric cars because the California Air Resources Board voted to ban most sales of new gasoline-fueled cars by 2035. In fact, essentially what they've said is they In California, you're only going to be able to sell a new car if it is zero emissions, so electric, hydrogen fuel cell, whatever it might be. But you will still be allowed to sell up to 20% uh, of your sales as plug-in hybrids, which of course do still have gasoline engines in them. So you'll sometimes see this announcement described as a complete ban on all sales of gasoline-fueled cars. It's not that, but it is still a very substantial, uh, significant development. So, but as you've just been saying, Amy, at the same time as this, we're seeing California and uh, along with other states in the West saying, hey, everybody, watch out, we've got a problem. Uh, Strain on the grid might be too great. Um, Can you please uh, ease back on demand wherever possible, including not charging our electric car? Which does seem then like a real that's a massive contradiction, isn't it, and that's a real flaw in their policy. If you're saying to everyone, Hey, get an e v oh, but by the way, you won't actually be able to charge it, that seems insane, really, like a really, very, very fundamentally flawed energy policy, right? I mean, what do you think
1: I agree it does not the 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 optics and the high level. Uh, headlines do not um, look good. And and conservatives, conservative lawmakers in California and even in Washington, D.C. have have seized upon that. I will say, though, that it it is limited to four to 10 p.m. Usually people charge their cars overnight. So it's not quite as dire as, as it seems. That said, you know, what what we need to happen is to have more clean energy available maybe keep some of those natural gas plants going longer than otherwise. Um, having this type of contradiction is is not going to make um, this ambitious effort to ban new sales of most gasoline-powered cars very easy.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned um, politicians in DC. How do you see the politics of this playing out? I mean, is this something which is going to attract widespread support? Uh, I've noted that um, California has been saying they expect, I think, is it up to 14 other states? There's a a group of other U.S. states that generally align with California in terms of emissions regulations and so on, and they could all follow suit. Then, in going for this near-complete ban on gasoline cars by 2035, that would be a huge change for America. And where car culture is such a huge thing, everyone always thinks of the role that cars play in American life. Probably more uh, is, is more powerful than anywhere else in the world. And the gasoline car being what's represented that. Are these states actually going to be able to persuade people to get the buy-in from the public to give up on the internal combustion engine? Amy, what do you think?
1: I think it's going to be, like so many climate policies across the United States, uh, very different depending on which state you're in. So several states have already said they're going to follow in Washington, um, sorry, in California's footsteps, including Washington State, um, my home state and, and where I'm living now. Uh, It's interesting. I tried to buy a plug-in hybrid, but could not find one in Washington. Uh, So I bought a Toyota Prius, perhaps the most boring, um, but still relatively clean car I could find. I'm perfectly happy with my purchase. But if the if uh, states are going to require states to buy either plug-in or up to twenty percent plug-in hybrids, and then mostly fully electric, they need to. We need to get the supply chain shortages under control because the demand is far outstripping supply. Uh, And so I think that's one concern. That's one practical concern. Then there's the cultural concern. I was having dinner the other night with some friends, none of whom are particularly conservative-minded, which is an important point to say here. They were not happy with this policy. They were saying it was too much, too fast. And if you're getting that in very dark blue Seattle, uh, imagine what you're getting on the other side of the Cascade Mountains in Washington State, which is conservative country. But that all said, I, I think this type of thing, 2035, we have some years. I think we, uh, I think we can do it if there's right things in place. But you're always going to have this cultural backlash.
0: So that's really interesting hearing about your your friends, as you say, in in even in very liberal Seattle. Was it the case that they had tried owning an EV? and not liked it? Or was it just they hadn't even given it a try? And there was a sort of fear of the unknown?
1: I think it was I I don't think they had have an EV. Um, but I think it was just they didn't want there to be a ban or somebody telling them what kind of car they can buy. But that, you know, if the example people often say is, when you if you would have pulled people, you know, in the horse and buggy age, they would have said I wanted a faster horse, not a totally different type of vehicle. So I think that type of resistance to change is not abnormal. Uh, I, but there are, t- there are real pragmatic challenges to overcome. I live in an apartment building right now. If I got a plug in hybrid vehicle, would I be able, where would I plug it in? The, the verdict is out on whether or not plug in, hi- like the efficacy a plug-in hybrids, and that's a whole other conversation. But there's just a lot of things that states are going to have to pair with this ban, this ban, excuse me, to make it uh, achievable, and that includes things like charging for uh, apartment buildings.
0: Yeah, as you say, the the infrastructure build out is going to be massive, isn't it? I was noticing the numbers that uh, California, for instance, has a target of having 250,000 uh, charging points by 2025. It's currently got 80,000, so. You really do need to ramp that up very quickly if you're going to get to a world where everyone who drives a new car is driving an EV. There's there's a great deal that needs to be done, both in the direct charging points and then in strengthen, strengthening the grid that lies behind that and the generation that supplies that grid and everything else. So yeah, as you say, there, is, um, there are certainly some some challenges on the road there.
2: What is that quote, Uh, I think it's Hemingway, Ed, we'll look this up after the show, but it's the, I think in the book it was, how do you go bankrupt two ways, gradually, then suddenly, Um, but it's like slowly and then everything at once. So I feel like California has put a flag in the sand and said, hey, in the next 13 years, this is where we're headed, y'all. So then you've got all kinds of justifications for how you build out your system moving forward to anticipate what's coming online. And it's not coming online next year. It's coming online over time, gradually, and then all at once, um, I feel like is what's happening right now. So as more of these policies get put in place, as the trajectory, the direction of travel is more firmly set, we will see more investments in the infrastructure we need. I mean, we saw that with gas stations and gasoline and diesel cars, and now we'll see it with electric cars. Um, I will say, being in Austin, and I've seen uh, you know, the city grow over my entire life, over the decades I've been on this earth, Like, it does seem like all at once, I cannot turn around and not see superchargers and EV chargers or a Tesla. I have I have can't even tell you the last day I didn't see at least a dozen Teslas on the road um, and other electric vehicles around. Like it's happening all at once. At least that's what it seems like. And so these kind of policies provide that clarity that you need. Now you can criticize the plug-in hybrid part of it when it comes to climate action, the of change is needed. You can also talk about how it's bans on new sales and it doesn't. You know it's phasing in but it's not fully in effect for a number of years still but the reality is it is setting a direction of travel and setting a clear signal that hey this stuff is going to be needed and i do find it interesting that was it on saturday um governor newsom signed that extension on diablo canyon for another five years of life um you know some kind of signal to keep nuclear online this goes back to leaning into practical pathways forward you know we're not talking about 80% reductions 50% reductions we're talking about net zero pathways and what do we need to get do to get it done And a big part of it is about transitioning transportation. Other parts of it are about making sure the backbone of this whole thing is in good shape, which is the power sector and the grid and all the things you highlighted, Ed. So I'm really encouraged by this signal. And if history teaches as much, a lot of states are going to follow on from California. A federal government seems to be moving in parallel to get a bunch of stuff in place. States are building coalitions to build out infrastructure across multi-state regions, like in the Midwest. There's a lot going on all at once.
0: And this is very personally relevant to you, right? We've been following this <laughs>
1: <It> saga <is. laughs>
0: for many months, it feels like now, where you've been looking at yep. buying a new vehicle. And so what's happened with that? What is, because you have news, I gather. <laughs> is that right?
2: I do. I do. Um, so long-term listeners will remember the uh, debates and the pro cons lists of which EV to purchase. And then it was back in March when we put some money down on EV. And we picked it up on Friday. So about six months after we placed our order, we picked up our EV. And so I'll tell you, um, Ed, Amy,
1: was the electric car you got Melissa and Arcimoto?
2: (laughs) I think so. We wanted a little bit more than 102 miles range, um, at the optimal driving speed, I will say to be able to get out to my parents place and back, but no, we got, um, a Tesla model Y and, uh, not because I love Teslas. It's because at the end of the day, I could get a delivery date and I knew I could charge it relatively easily. And those things mattered. So I could put money down. Oh man, the Rivian truck, so cool. Um, The Cybertruck, really cool too. And those things might be able to pull our RV, a bunch of different other things. Um, But Tesla's put out this SUV that kind of falls into that, can fit my family with our dog and our groceries and everything else and get us 300 plus miles to a charge. And I could get a delivery date. (laughs) And in the area I live in, again, like superchargers are everywhere. So we had a huge pro con list, but this is the one I knew I could get. And I will, like all credit to Tesla, they told us six months and it was, and we picked it up. And, uh, you know, it's got all the specs that we put on it. And there you go. The guys did say if we ordered today, it would be longer. That's what they did tell me. Um, but you know, that was a huge factor
1: in our decision. And probably more expensive, right?
2: Way more expensive.
1: So yep. that's, in addition to the supply chain problems and, and the the weight people have to, to endure, prices are going up. I wrote an article for Axios uh, when I was there a year or two ago, long before any of this happened, was that elec- the headline was something like electric cars have to be cheaper. And prices were already going up for electric cars before this spike in supply chains and and Battery uh, containments and just to keep the Arkamoto thread going. Uh, a good example of this is we could have chosen the Arkamoto or a traditional, very loud, gasoline powered little moped type thing. It was $100 more expensive for the electric version. We were willing to do that for a fun outing during the day, but prices for electric cars are, you know, Ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars more than the, the gasoline-powered version, and so even though over the life of the vehicle it's more affordable, you can't explain that to somebody who um, is, you know, this which article I read recently about—I uh, think it was in the Washington Post about—and uh, based in Port Arthur, Texas, and those people are feeling left behind with the Inflation Reduction Act. A fact in there is that the the average median income for that region is the same as the average price. For a new electric vehicle. So just let that sink in. Their entire yearly salary is the same as the price of a new electric car. So that needs to change as well if these state bans are going to be um, achieved.
2: Yeah, I'll say, Amy, I'm really encouraged by uh, a lot of the information I'm seeing around leasing options for electric vehicles that allow those benefits to be felt right away. Though you do have to qualify for a lease because you've got to have the credit score and all that other stuff. But it does, I don't know, give me a bit more hope about more rapid adoption across a spectrum of folks, not just the folks who've got, I don't know, extra money sitting there in an account. Um, even in our case, I mean, we saved up for this vehicle. You know, that it took us time. And I will say we put in the order a little bit earlier than we would have because we were pretty sure the price was gonna go up. And sure enough, it did. We were offered a used option if we wanted to get it two months earlier. And the cost of that used vehicle with with miles on it plus fewer options was the same as what we were paying. Um, and so we just decided to wait the two more months. We could have sold our place in line probably and made a little bit of money, but I wanted the EV. Like I wanted to be driving a zero tailpipe emission vehicle um, every day for our commutes, our short commutes, and taking kiddos to school and that kind of stuff. I'm still waiting for Elon
1: Musk to open up his supercharger network. Mm. If he really cared about climate change, he would open it up immediately. But
2: there's a lot of stuff in the news right now back to the cost thing around the supercharger network about how much more expensive the superchargers are now. Mm. And so what is it? Uh some rates, some numbers I was seeing, and I need to run through all of them. So these should not be quoted or cited into any research. But it's like the equivalent uh cost of charging is something like in the 30 to 40 miles per gallon. If you're driving a car at these lower gas prices, you're paying similar amounts. Mm. So back to your point about you live in an apartment, et cetera, I'm saving tons of money because. I can charge in my garage because I have a garage mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can charge off of that. One frustration point I will say to your earlier stuff about demand response is that I don't yet have an easy app interface for delaying and kind of off-peak charging of that car. So I'm having to do some stuff manually now, but that's that's infinitely solvable. We will figure that out. We just got the vehicle a couple days ago, um, but there you go. That's how we made the decision. That's exciting. Congratulations. It feels good. And I will say it's so much fun to drive. (laughs) Like, forget that it's zero tailpipe emissions. I'm just, it's fun. (laughs) I'm uh, just enjoying the heck out of it. The pickup, I'm in chill mode right now. I will say the standard mode was, was very zippy. So I'm in chill mode at the moment.
0: And going back to that point, the discussion we were having earlier about should people be expected to accept reduced standards of living to tackle climate change evs it seems to me are a great example where the answer to that is totally no because as you say the driving experience is fantastic and it, it's just it is a lot nicer than riding in or driving an internal combustion engine car it's it's nicer to be in one it's actually nicer for everyone around you because you don't you know the fumes and the mm-hmm. and the noise isn't there so yeah that that is Absolutely. those are definitely a step forward
1: California has taken a lot of steps on climate change recently. Um, In addition to the ban on new sales of new gasoline-powered cars, another one they took, which I find fascinating, and it resonates with me personally, is they're giving a a tax credit to lower-income people $1,000 for not owning a car and having that money supplement their ability to to take public transit and other ride-sharing activities. And I think that's great because the studies show that it's not just about buying another chunk of metal. It's about actually reducing our dependence upon vehicles altogether. And as somebody who lived in DC for 12 years, never had a car and absolutely loved it and now live in Seattle and very reluctantly drive a car. I I hope more of that uh, can be part of our plans going forward. The challenge there is it's that is so tied to urban planning and the way cities are comprised that, um, it's not just, you can't just throw money at the problem, you have to to change urban planning as well.
0: Yeah, I do completely agree with that. Having similarly not owned a car for a long time and, and loved not owning a car, and I'm a real train fan, and I would always uh, choose to go uh, by train rather than drive if I could. But as you say, that's really something, if you're going to increase ridership on mass transit, public transport. It often requires a lot of very fundamental changes in terms of urban planning, and that's one of the great things actually about the EV is you don't have to change anything else about the transport system, about the road network. Obviously you do have to, as we've been saying, change the grid, you have to build the charges and so on. but there's a lot that doesn't need to change, and they are just easier. and so probably even if those public transport options are ultimately superior would be the best option the not quite as good, but still better than what we've got option of the EV is the one that's really going to catch on. I think certainly in the US, in other countries that are car dependent, that have built themselves around the car, I think it's going to be very hard to completely get away from that. But anyway, Melissa, it is, as Amy was saying, it's exciting that you've got this and going to be very interested to hear how it works out for you. You should um, You should give us regular updates and we should hear back from you Uh, in six months or a year or maybe in five years to see whether you still love it. It'd be very interesting to hear how you get on with it.
2: I will say, Ed, the current plan is for this uh, car to be my kiddo's first car (laughs) later on, but we'll see how technologies develop Um, in the meantime. I know I got a very old um, used car from my parents when I had my first license at 16 they were like this is fine you should use this so you know we got plans to have it around for a while and uh, no surprise to anyone listening to this um, I am already just diving into the data that are available uh, from this vehicle it's amazing how much data I've already been able to like check out take a look at you know just learning about our driving behaviors what we do charging just endless endless things. Uh it's really 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 fascinating to me. So yeah, let's let's check back in.
0: That's uh yeah. Great to have great to have a whole new area to nerd out on. That does sound fascinating. So now we really should um leave it there. I'm afraid just before we go though, this is of course time for free electrons. Regular listeners will know these are the personal items we have brought in. As I said before, we're always very keen to hear from you if you have observations, comments. Anything else you want to share about the world of energy, please do send them in. Um, Twitter is a good way to reach us, as I was saying. You can find us at, at the Energy Gang. Um, but now for ours, Melissa, what's your free electron?
2: So I've got a couple, no surprise. Uh, the first one is actually the podcast I mentioned briefly earlier. So I've been catching up on podcasts because I didn't listen to them much going into the holiday weekend. And this morning I was... Listening to the interview that um, our director at the Center on Global Energy Policy, Jason Bordoff, and Megan O'Sullivan from Harvard did with Foreign Policy, um, really talking about the geopolitics of the transition, things we were writing about last year, and then how things have changed now um, with Russia invading Ukraine, accelerated action in the EU, etc. So it was really fascinating um, interview and discussion and. Jason and Megan, just I learn so much from them. Um, every time I hear them speak, you know their their expertise is so deep in national security, et cetera. So that's one thing I'll flag. The next thing I'll say is that I'm actually catching up on news out of California that we were mentioning earlier. So, Governor Newsom signed stuff on Saturday when I was trying to, you know, be a little bit offline. Um, Robbie and I were joking last week about him going on vacation and me too. Just in time for the inflation reduction act to happen. So I feel like if we want policy to happen, I just need to like go out of town for a couple days. Um, And that's what happened over the weekend. There were definitely some signatures on a few different things. And, um, you know, diving into that and really understanding what this is setting up in terms of Diablo Canyon, et cetera. Ed, I just got to add, this Diablo Canyon stuff that I'm reading about, it really brings me back to a ton of our NIMBY conversations. I know, Amy, we've talked about it too, where I've been having conversations with people who live around this nuclear power plant, reliving kind of the opposition it had when it was built, and the mixed feelings that are going on right now about it being extended, because there's climate, and there's just other things on people's minds. So that's what I'm diving
0: into this week. So I also have a NIMBYism free electron, in fact. But I think, <laughs> so, but hey, Amy, what's your...
1: Well, I, that is also something that is on my mind. This whole concept of building big clean energy infrastructure is really core to combating climate change. So it is something that we focus on a lot at Cipher. And I think it's important to remember that not every nimbyism is created equal. Um, for lack of a better word, I know nimbyism to some can be derogatory and uh, a little patronizing. So nonetheless, there are examples of when people complain about their viewshed being ruined. I have not a lot of sympathy for those people. You can still have a beautiful view and have a power line in it. I have a power line outside of my view where I live, and it is still beautiful. But then there are other examples of where I'm thinking, just as a citizen, I'm, I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. And one example is this pipeline, um, the Mountain Valley pipeline that Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is trying to get built, and it may be approved as part of some sort of side deal on permitting that Congress may consider this month. Uh, and in this article that's from e News, um, News, the reporter traveled down to the path of the pipeline and they talked to one woman whose house is within the so-called blast zone of the pipeline. So it's within, I think, 530 feet. Uh, and so if the pipeline were, of course, pipeline explosions are very rare, but they do, they can technically happen. Uh, their house would, would blow up. And. That is something that I didn't know. I don't, it seems like there's, and I know it's hard to find a right path, but it seems like you should be able to find a path that isn't, that doesn't put a house in a blast zone. And so that's interesting to me.
0: Okay, so that is that is a very interesting story, I agree. And I totally take your point about even the word nimbyism can be reductive and can sort of obscure what can be very real concerns people have got about, um, Activity, construction, whatever it might be uh, happening where they live, fine, accepted all of that. That said, there are some examples, as you were suggesting that just do seem totally egregious where the word nimbyism I think totally fits, and there's just I was saying earlier, so British politics has been uh, on my mind because of new Prime Minister just taking over, and there was an announcement from a British MP that absolutely blew my mind um a week or two back and she'd set up a like a photo opportunity with about a dozen people all kind of smiling and sort of thumbs up and whatever because they'd managed to kill a solar project it was not not a huge thing it was like a a 20 megawatt solar project which was going to be in some village somewhere south of england and local people had objected and they'd managed to stop it getting built and you just think in terms of the scale of the energy crisis that the country is now facing, as we've been discussing at uh, in depth already on the show, it just seems insane that you could come out there and say, good news. I mean, and I think it does reflect that point about, we're still in a little bit of a kind of a phony war situation with the energy crisis in Europe. People haven't yet suffered blackouts they haven't yet suffered their gas supply being interrupted they've in the uk to an extent been cushioned from some of the effect on their bills because there's a kind of a regulated cap which is only changed every few months and so the real extremity of what's happening in energy markets hasn't yet hit people but even saying all that even allowing for all that the idea that you could be there posing grinning with your thumbs up because you've killed off an investment in solar power now above all Times it just seemed mad to me, absolutely extraordinary, and something that really has to change. And I wonder if people will still be taking that same attitude in six months' time. If, as you say, the winter's going to be hard, it's something where I think a lot of attitudes to energy are going to be tested. And again, to think about the optimistic side of things and uh, looking at least at what might be positive that might come out of this very difficult time taking a more clear-sighted and realistic attitude to the energy investments that they really need to make, that we as the world really need to make. Hopefully that is one uh, thing that's going to come out of this and, and one bit of progress we're going to make. So yeah, interesting. There you go. We should call them the NIMBY electrons. Some very interestingly different perspectives on that same issue. But I, I do think, as you say, the kind of the crucial thing is there is a there is a spectrum here. And there are some issues that people have that are kind of fair and understandable and some that really aren't. So that is all for the Energy Gang for this week. We are going to have to leave it there. Um, But thanks very much, Amy, for coming in.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: And thank you very much, Melissa.
2: Ed, good to see you. It was great to be uh, back on the mic while you're here as well. That was a lot of fun.
0: Indeed. Very nice to be back uh, together talking to, to you as well. Yes, that was great. Um, thanks very much to our producers, uh, Shika Perez and Toby Biggins gilchrist And very many thanks to all of you for listening. As I was saying, please let us know what you think. Comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering very gratefully received. We're on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang. I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.